We are so thankful you decided to take time out of your day to listen to this sermon. Central to all of our services is gospel-centered teaching led by our senior pastor, Dr. Jeff Warren. Together, we are a church that seeks to follow Jesus every day, and we hope you are drawn closer to Christ as a result of this message. Good morning. Water. It is something that we absolutely need. Life needs water. In fact, as we go and explore the galaxies, looking for maybe another planet to inhabit, one of the things we have to have is water. Civilizations rise and fall around water. Water is an incredibly essential item for creatures. There are very few creatures that can live apart from a plentiful source of water. Water's even been used as a weapon of war, even as recently in World War II. Armies would poison water supplies against other armies to try and poison them because they realized that poisoned water drunk by a large army can do more damage and incapacitate more troops than bullets or swords can. In fact, the poisoning of water is such, a, such an iconic thing in military strategy that, that Islamic teaching actually forbids the poisoning of your enemy's wells, which is really interesting to think about. Water. And you can drink poisoned water, and unless it smells funny, you won't know that you're ingesting pollutants into your body. It's not until about 12 hours later did you find that out? Civilizations build up around water supplies, wells. And we have wells that we go to as well, as individuals and as people. Our wells don't necessarily look like water supplies. Hopefully all of you have good tap water at your home. But I'm thinking about habits, rituals, traditions, things that we embark upon that we go to regularly for our identity, for purpose, for meaning, when I'm confused, when I'm struggling, when I'm tired, I go and take deep drinks from these uh, methods of relaxation, uh, habits, traditions, working out, things like that. But do you ever stop and wonder if the wells that you're drinking from actually aren't helping you, but they might be hurting you? I've never considered this. I've never thought much about what it is that I do as far as whether or not it's helping me or hurting me in that way. Is this poisoning me? So what I want us to talk about today is we look at uh, some of Jesus' words about water. I want us to ask basically three questions before we take a drink of water. We're continuing on in this study of the words spoken by the Word. We're looking at Jesus' words, who's the living Word of God, and basically His commentary on the Old Testament. And today's passage in John 7 is actually really unique because it's not a direct quotation of the Old Testament. Jesus is kind of giving a summary statement. So we're going to be in John chapter 7 today, as I said, and we're going to be in verse 37. And I want us to ask three questions before we take a drink from some of the wells that we drink from. The first question we need to ask is, am I thirsty? Am I thirsty? Am I thirsty? Look at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts. Let's stop right there. Jesus is about to make a bold statement at what's called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. 
Now, this was a, a very exciting time. It was a celebratory festival. In fact, at different points in Judaism, it actually rivaled Passover in popularity. So it's kind of the way that we argue over which one's more important, Easter or Christmas. It's Easter, by the way. We argue about those things. They would, they would kind of debate back and forth whether Passover or the Feast of Booths was, was a more significant festival. So people would come to Jerusalem. They would build uh, these kind of booths or tabernacles, these temporary shelters to live in, and they'd stay there for about seven or eight days. By the time we get to Jesus' day, the, the festival had been extended to an eighth day. And, and while they're there, they're remembering, they're reflecting on the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so they're reenacting this, and there's kind of two points to this. One, it's to reflect on the scarcity and the, the privation that the Israelites went through during that time. Because they were needing water, they were needing food, manna was coming down from heaven, God was sending quail, but there wasn't this ready, constant supply of things that they needed. They had to depend on God. So it's this time of scarcity, so they remember this. But it's also a time of celebration, because they're remembering the fact that God was faithful during those times, which is easy to do looking back. It's hard sometimes to trust God in the moment, but looking back you can say, yeah, absolutely, God was faithful. So there's this tension between scarcity and between supply. And they're celebrating the fact that their scarcity led them back to God, that scarcity drove them to dependence. And this is ultimately what thirst, what need does to us. It drives us back to God. Our desires push us to God. Our desires are supposed to do that. C.S. Lewis actually says in Mere Christianity, here's a quote that's pretty uh, popular, and you can see it here on the screen. Is it there? It's there. Is the quote there? No? Cool. We actually has a quote where he talks about if I have desires that are too, too deep, too rich, too meaningful for this life, it's pointing me towards another, uh, another existence, another life. It's pointing me to something greater towards God. And Lewis is right. C.S. Lewis is absolutely right. But far too often we live in a society not of unquenched thirst and not in scarcity, but in actually an overabundance of having the things that we want. Many of you, when I ask the question, am I thirsty, you're probably going to say, nope. Because we have ample drinks to draw from to find our identity, to find our purpose, to find our meaning in. Rather than living in a desert of scarcity that drives us to God, we live in a veritable water park where water is not just something we drink, but we play in it and we have fun. And what I mean by that is Rather than feeling discomfort, we, we actually uh, have fun. We actually enjoy the dependence because it pushes us to some of the idols that we have. Like, for instance, uh, uh, if your ambition is to climb the ladder, to be the best, to be the top of things, then you take a ride on the, the, the water slide of success. You go, wee! You climb that ladder and it's fun, right? If your, your thing is hedonism and comfort and your own personal pleasure, then welcome to the, the, the lazy river of luxury where all the sex, alcohol, food, hedonistic pleasures, media, sports, all those things are offered to you and you can take them in as much as you want and you can numb whatever discomfort you have on the lazy river of luxury. Or my personal favorite, and this one's relatively new, the log flume of flattery. I was running out of water rides, so I went to the log flume with that one. The log flume of flattery where you can find social media, dating apps, 
false friends that'll tell you exactly what you want to hear. And when they stop telling you what you want to hear, you know what you can do? You can block them, you can unfriend them, you can call them toxic and go away. Unlike the Israelites who are allowed to feel scarcity and feel their dependence upon God, let their thirst drive them to God, we don't ever get to that point. Because the moment I have a want or a need, I fill it myself. I fill it up myself. Every desire that you have can be met by a click or a touch or a walk or a drive or a phone call away. And so if you're thirsty, you might not even realize it, right? Because there's some things that you can drink from that don't actually quench your thirst. They don't actually hydrate you. You might be dehydrated and you drink something, but it doesn't actually provide hydration. So I, I like to run uh, sometimes. I don't really like to run. I do run. Um, I'm just going to go, going to be real specific about that. I also uh, do an elliptical machine. Uh, but one time, uh, this is actually more than once, uh, I've come in from a run like in June or July, and I really want like a really cold, refreshing drink of water, right? Now, there is conflict in my house where my wife prefers to have room temperature water. I prefer to have cold water, and appropriately so, it is my responsibility to make sure that the cold water that I desire is in the refrigerator for me to drink. Well, on this particular day, I had not done my due diligence, and I came in from my run about three miles sweating, and I'm like, I want really cold water. And I opened the fridge, and there's no cold water in there. Now, the wise thing to do in this particular case was to drink just normal room temperature water, right? That would have been just as hydrating, if not cooler. But what did I do? That Diet Coke is cold. I'll have that. Now, it tasted good for like all of five seconds. It was nice and bubbly and fizzy. It did nothing to hydrate me. In fact, it actually probably further dehydrated me after my run, which is very dangerous. But this is often what we do. We get a desire, we get a need, something that only really God can fulfill. And we run to one of our wells. We run to our habits, our, our success, our job, our, our family, our friends. We run somewhere that gives us meaning and identity, and we just take a big drink. And under certain circumstances, those might be okay to drink from. Like it's okay to have a soda every now and again. But we can often drink from these things, and we're actually dehydrating ourselves further. And we cover up our thirst, our need, and we go on with our day, and we think everything's fine, and you're not, you haven't been satiated at all. You still have a thirst. You just don't realize it. So that first question you need to ask is, am I thirsty? What wells am I drinking from? And are they giving me nourishment? Or are, they giving me, uh, are they meeting my needs? Are they hydrating me? Or are they not? And so that leads us to our second question. Am I hydrating? Am I hydrating? Jesus keeps going in verse 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So Jesus finishes this statement, and this is actually the first statement he's made at the festival since a couple of statements he made in the very beginning of the week. So he makes a few statements in the beginning of the week, and shock, people get angry about it. I know, right? People get angry at what Jesus says. And they, and they, they, they send out an arrest warrant for him. And so Jesus kind of plays it low-key, which is really interesting when you think about it. He kind of keeps it under the radar. He's like, okay, I'm not going to say anything. And then Jesus stands up at the feast and he says this. And this is actually kind of an allusion or a quote, sort of, of Isaiah 55. Where Isaiah 55 starts with, if anyone thirsts, 
come to, and then it ends with, after a couple stanzas, it ends with, come to God and drink. Now, if you were at a festival, and at, and at the Feast of Booths, at the Feast of Tabernacles, there's this ritual where the uh, high priest would dip wa- a bowl of water into the pool of Siloam, there'd be a processional up to the, high, the, the temple, and they would pour out water on the temple steps. And it would be this time of being thankful to God for his, uh, his provision of water and asking them to provide more water. So if Jesus were to say, if anyone thirsts, come to God and drink, if he were to say that, everybody would be like, oh, that's appropriate. That's just right. Yeah, good job, Jesus. I agree with that wholeheartedly. It'd be like playing away in the manger at Christmas time. It makes sense. It fits, right? But Jesus doesn't do that, does he? No, he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to who and drink? Me. And you've got to think Jesus' PR person is over there being like, ah, oh, we almost got out of here. Jesus. Like, couldn't keep it together for like another. We almost got out of here alive. Jesus is making a bold statement here. He's saying that those who are thirsty need to come in to him and drink. Now, the pool of Siloam that I mentioned is a, is a, it's fed by a spring, living water. That's what living water is. Living water is running water, right? So it's fed by the spring. It's not collected. And the pool of Siloam was known to have physical healing properties and, and would make you ceremonially clean. So if you were ceremonially unclean, you couldn't worship, you could go to this pool of Siloam and wash and you would be fit to worship. It would also be healing. Jesus actually sends a blind man in John chapter 9, just a few chapters from here, to the pool of Siloam to wash and to be healed. And what's really cool is the man comes back in John chapter 9, verse 30, and does he credit the pool of Siloam with his healing? No, he's like, ah, Jesus made me, made me heal well. Even though he knows that the pool of Siloam is the place of healing. In John 4, Jesus tells a woman who's drawing water from a well, which would have been standing water, which wouldn't have been as good as spring water, living water coming up. He's like, I've got living water I can give you. And she'd be like, oh, cool, I, I, I want some of the living water. The difference between living water and, 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 and well water was significant. It's like offering somebody like tap water versus Perrier. It's a big difference. In a place like Judea where water can be scarce, that's a, that's a, they, they want living spring water. If you go on a hike or you're going camping and you have to drink from water, don't drink from standing water, right? You drink from running water. It's cleaner, it's purer. And Jesus actually uh, is pointing people to the fact that in, in Jeremiah, God actually says, if, you are, if you, uh, the people are following after idols, they're going after idols, and, and he says that they're drinking from cisterns and from wells that are broken, and they've rejected me, their living water. And so the prophets and the people of God during that day looked forward to a day that living water would come and replace these broken wells, these poisoned wells that were hurting people. What is living water then? What is this living water that Jesus offers? It's eternal life. It's eternal life. And this eternal life is given to us, is sealed, and it's mediated by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 39. We're going to come to 38, but look at 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, when I say eternal life, most of you, probably like me, think of life that happens after you die, right? So this is my life, and then I die, and then if I've trusted Jesus uh, as my Savior, then guess what? I get eternal life. 
That's actually not the way it works. Eternal life is also called abundant life. And it starts now. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you've believed in Christ as your Savior, eternal life starts right now. It started when you believed, when the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. So let me explain. So all of us have done things wrong. And on top of that, we've inherited this nature, it's called a sin nature, from Adam. When he ate of the fruit, he gave it, passed it along to us, and so we're carrying within us this sin nature. And this separates us from God. But Jesus was sent by God, the Son of God was sent to rescue us from our sins. In dying, being buried, and being resurrected, we now... If you believe in that, if you say, I want that to count for me, because there's nothing we can do to really connect ourselves to God, nothing on our own that we can do. But Jesus, in his grace, we can believe in him. We can say that that counts for me. That counts for me. And if you do that, you're saved. If you believe that his sacrifice counts for you. And then the Holy Spirit comes and sets up shop inside of you, comes and lives inside of you, and imparts to you this eternal life. The Holy Spirit, he's not someone we talk about often in church, is he? I think as Baptists, we're kind of scared of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I have a book on my shelf. It's called Who's Afraid of the Holy Spirit? I think it's everybody. Because we really can't control him which is good. But the Holy Spirit does a lot of things. He has a lot of roles in Scripture. But I want to look at two things that the Holy Spirit does in the life of the believer. So once you come and believe in Christ, what are two things that He gives you that's kind of this abundant life? The first thing He gives us is unity. He gives us unity. Look at 1 Corinthians 12. 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. I mentioned this earlier. Communities, civilizations, cities are built around water sources. If you start naming off great civilizations and great cities, you'll be able to name the water source that they're put around. Egypt, the Nile, Babylon, the Tigris and the Euphrates, Rome, the Tiber River, Paris, the Seine, London, the Thames, New York, the Hudson, Dallas. Guess we got the Trinity, cool. Something, right? But most major civilizations are built around a water source because people need water to survive. And if it's not an abundant source of water, it can't sustain large groups of people. So we look at the abundant water source that we have that is Jesus Christ, that is this eternal life flowing out from him. And the Holy Spirit connects us. He unifies us to Christ. So why the resurrection is important is because it's a signifier. It shows us that Jesus' death was accepted by God as a sacrifice. And so when we believe in Jesus as our Savior, the Holy Spirit comes and unites us to Jesus' death, his burial, and also his resurrection, which imparts to us life that will be realized fully when Christ returns. You are unified to Jesus' life. And so it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's how that works. 
So we have unity with Jesus. We're drawn, we're, we're setting up shop, we're building ourselves around this living water, this water source. But what's really cool about that is when I come and do that, guess what? There's already people around this water source. It's called the church. And the church is building up around this living water, this city of God that is growing and expanding around this living water source that is a, a, a completely inexhaustible resource of water. And so when you're drinking from that water and I'm drinking from that water, it unifies us and connects us as one body and as one community. And this is why it's so important for you to be involved in a community and church. We're not perfect. We're a good church. We're not perfect. And you might think, well, I don't want to be involved in a connect group because of this. I don't want to be involved in a connect group because of that. That's like saying, I don't want to go drink from the river because other people are drinking from it. And you're standing out in the desert and be like, well, I'm just going to be cool out here by myself. Dying of thirst. Come drink from the water with the rest of us. Join a connect group. Join a small group. Yesterday we celebrated uh, some of our men's small groups that have been meeting together for about six weeks. And it was a really cool time to see how community is infusing some of this living water into people's lives. It's one of the ways that you can get away from some of the poisoned wells that are in your life and actually have God come and sanctify some of those wells. Success isn't bad. Comfort isn't bad. Flattery might be bad. But when Christ comes and if we're drinking, if we're nourishing ourselves from the living water of Christ, we're building our life around this living water with other believers, those other wells get put in perspective and we no longer find our identity in them. We stead and find our identity in the living water, right? So he gives us unity because church is supposed to be life-giving. Second thing he gives us is fruit. He gives us fruit. Look at Galatians 5. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Once you become united to Christ, you have this water flowing in your life, guess what? You are connected. And because you're connected, you're like a tree planted by a river. This is Psalm 1, right? You start bearing fruit. Now, a tree doesn't sit down one day and be like, all right, I guess it's that time of year. I'm going to think real hard and start making fruit. I know I'm an orange tree, but I'm really going to try for apples today. It's going to go great. They're going to be kind of an orangish tint. It's going to be, going to be really fantastic. And, but that's how some of us work with the fruit of the Spirit. We look at our life and be like, well, I really need to work on patience, or I really need to work on self-control. There's a little bit of truth there. But the way that you produce spiritual fruit is by drawing close to the water source, close to the Holy Spirit, who connects us to Christ. And then as you're drawing closer to Him, guess what happens? A little fruit starts popping up. Patience. Joy. Oh my gosh, I'm loving. Oh my goodness. Self-control, where'd that come from? That's not me, right? It's okay to have goals and things like that, but recognize that it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of Travis. It's not the fruit of you. It's not the fruit of others. So the more you draw away from these polluted wells and cisterns that we go to often, the more you'll start bearing out fruit because you'll be drawing on the Holy Spirit. If you want to know, like if you want a diagnostic in your life, to know what am I drinking from? Am I drinking from some poisoned wells? Am I drinking from these water sources that aren't good, like success and flattery and stuff like that? Or am I drinking from the, the living water of God? Do you know how you can know that? 
Look at your fruit. Are you bearing out the fruit of the Spirit that's in 5.22? Or are you pouring out some of the works of the flesh that he talks about earlier on in the passage? Does your life look like verse 19? Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. If your life looks more like that, then you're probably not drawing deeply on the water, the living water of Jesus Christ. You're probably finding your identity in some other things. It's how you can know. So how do I make a practice of this? How do I get to this living water? And Well, I would say you've got to build around the water source, right? So we've talked about how communities build around good water sources. We need to be a person and a community that builds around this water source. So first thing you need to do is you actually need to trust the water source. There's some countries where I'll go that I will not drink the water. Why? I don't trust it. I might be able to drink it and be okay, but I'm not taking that chance. Jesus is not one of those water sources. Some of you look at Christ and you're like, I don't know if I can trust him. I don't know if, I am afraid he's going to rip the rug right out from under me. I'm afraid that he's going to do something. He's going to ask me to do something I don't want to do. Well, maybe he will. Maybe he will ask you to do something that you want to do, but he will always be there with you. He will always be faithful. Some of you need to put your faith in Christ and trust him as your source of water. Put all your chips in. Build your city. Plant your life around him as your sole water source. And stop trying to irrigate from other places. The second thing that we need to do is we need to dig into the disciplines. We talked about this a little bit last week, the spiritual disciplines, but I want to talk about it again. Spiritual disciplines. We're pretty good at prayer. We're pretty good at being in Scripture in the Baptist church, but there's other disciplines. There's meditation. There's celebration. There's fasting. There's resting. Those are great ways to dig deeply into the water source that is Jesus Christ. New ways to get water. Another thing that you can do is to have faith in times of drought. Look, everybody goes through seasons of drought with the Lord. And it might not be because you did anything wrong. It's not because maybe you you committed some sin and God doesn't want to talk to you anymore. That's not what's going on. Sometimes God's just silent. And often what we do in that is just throw up our hands and be like, well, what's the point of talking to God? When what God's asking us to do is to dig deeper, to go deeper, to trust Him, to provide that water, just like the Israelites had to trust Him. If you're going through a time of seasonal drought right now, I would recommend to you the book by Bruce Demarest called Seasons of the Soul. It's called Seasons of the Soul. He does a great job talking through it. God has not left you. His Spirit's not left you. So keep digging. Last question. Am I thirsty? Am I hydrating? Am I watering? Am I watering? Verse 38. Verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, And then Jesus quotes, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus concludes this brief proclamation by saying that a person who comes to him will actually have these living waters flowing out from him. Actually coming out from him. And this is what consistent with what Scripture teaches about the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. So in Ezekiel chapter 43, or sorry, in chapter 10, The Holy Spirit, Ezekiel has this vision of the Holy Spirit leaving the temple of God. So the Holy Spirit had descended on the temple, had set up shop there, but in 10, the people had rebelled, they followed after idols, and the Holy Spirit's like, I'm done, and he leaves. But in chapter 43, the Holy Spirit comes back. He returns and he sets up shop in the temple. And then in 47, there's this vision that Ezekiel has that's really beautiful. I'm going to read about 12 verses. It's kind of long, but I think it's really beautiful. 
Then he brought me back to the door. This is an angelic figure that's with Ezekiel. To the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing forth from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me out, sorry, and brought me around to the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. So it's a trickle. It's just really light. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits, and then he led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. And again he measured a thousand, and he led me through the water, and it was waist deep. And again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, which is what Ezekiel gets called often and where Jesus derives his title as well, have you seen this? And then he led me back to the bank of the river. And as I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. Okay, the Arabah and the sea. This is the Dead Sea region. So the sea he's talking about is the Dead Sea where no life grows. It's so salty. Everything's dead. Nothing exists there. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea, from the Engedi to the Ingalim, and it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very great many kinds, like the fish of the great sea or the Mediterranean. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh, they are to be left for salt." And on the banks and on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fruit fresh, fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So you see what's happening. This area that's dead, that's polluted, is actually becoming watered by the temple where the Holy Spirit dwells. And life begins to pop up. People begin to nourish themselves on it, which is really cool when you think about it because now we are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. If Christ lives inside of you, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, which means living water issues forth from you, which is exactly what Jesus is talking about in chapter 7. It's what he's mentioning there. And this is a consistent picture that goes all the way up to Revelation 22 when there's water flowing out and nourishing the new heaven and the new earth. But the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. And this is what I mean by are you watering? Are you watering? We live in an area of the world where water is so abundant, so plentiful, that we don't have to worry about drinking it. We actually just dump it on our lawns to keep them green. Think about how ridiculous that is. We have so much water, we put it on grass that's going to grow anyway. Eventually, it will come back. Some of you live in housing communities that require you to have a green lawn. Whereas in other cultures, if we were to be there and dump water out on the ground to make the grass green, we would be seen as irresponsible, reckless, maybe even criminal. But that's my point. If you're connected to the Holy Spirit, if you've built your life and your community around this living water, you know what happens? You've got so much water that you can dump it out into the lives of other people. You're like a sprinkler head that pops up and gives people grace, like you shower people with the love and the affection of Christ. You give them encouragement. You show them the gospel. You teach them. You pour out on them. You're like a sprinkler head that pops up. Now, some of you have sprinkler systems in your, your lawn. You can always tell when a sprinkler head's not working. How do you know? Because that one patch of grass is like discolored. 
Everything else is green, and then there's this brown patch that's like right there. You're thinking, oh, what's wrong with my sprinkler system? Right? Look at the life around you. Is the area of, of, of the lawn, the lawn being the kingdom of God that God has given to you, is it green? Is it flourishing? Or is it brown? Is it dying? Is God doing something through you? Look at your job. Are you in a place that's flourishing? Or is it cutthroat? And are you playing right into that? Or are you bringing life? Are you giving encouragement? Are you building people up at your place of work? Look at your marriage. I understand that there's two people in a marriage. But for your part, are you encouraging? Are you lifting up? Or or are you just trying to make it about you? Are your friendships people that you pour into? Or do you always come around and expect people to pour into you? Basically, when you go someplace, do you bring life? Do you bring joy, encouragement, love? Or do you bring death, criticism, sarcasm, belittlement? We're planted by God to be instruments of His watering the world, bringing about flourishing and helping people know the God who loves them. And if you're drinking from these poisoned wells that we have, if you're drinking from success, if you're drinking from flattery, if you're drinking from luxury, and that's where you get your identity, guess what you're going to pour out into other people's lives? The same polluted water. If I drink polluted water on my own and I get sick, people are like, oh, okay, you got sick. I'm really sorry for you, Travis. But if I drink poisoned water and knowingly give it to other people, that's a criminal act. That's a felony, I'm pretty sure. That's, a, that's poisoning somebody. But we do this in our lives. We pour these things into other people's lives all the time. What do we teach our kids? What do we teach our grandkids? That success is the most important thing? That being comfortable is the most important thing? What do we teach the friends around us? Our fellow churchgoers? What are we teaching the world? I'll tell you what you're teaching them. You're teaching them that wherever you derive your identity from, that's where they're going to derive their identity from. And so it's important for us as believers that we build our lives, our communities, around the living water of Jesus Christ. And we don't pour any of that other water on the lives of other people. You have an opportunity to thrive and to help other people thrive as well. So one of the places you need to do is look at every part of your life as just a part of the lawn that you're responsible to water. And what's cool about God's sprinkler system, and I get worked about about this too, because I think I have to be the one that does everything, right? Well, God has provided other sprinklers in your life. So if there's somebody in your life that you're praying for, somebody you're worried about, guess what? God will bring other people into that person's life. But you need to do your part as well. That's why we're doing the Who's Your One thing. Do your part. Pray for that person. Bring them with you on Easter Sunday. Pay attention to things like your gifts. The Holy Spirit gives gifts to us as believers and gives them to us to use them for the glory of God and the good of other people. Are you using them for your own success, though? Use them for your own comfort, for your own identity. Another thing that you can do is you can be involved in service and missions. You can serve here in the church. You can also serve overseas. There's a, there's a group headed out to Guatemala. Here's a picture of them right here. This is a men's team. They're going to Guatemala. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to share the gospel. They're going to play some sports. And they're going to bring uh, uh, some water, some of the living water that they have that's flown up abundantly in them 
they're going to go and take and share with those in Guatemala, which also has tons of people who have living water there too. We're not bringing the gospel to Guatemala. The gospel's already there and working, but these men are, are, are going and using their talents, their gifts, their passions, their abilities to help water the lawn there with the living water of Jesus Christ. So ask yourself, am I thirsty? My guess is you'll probably say initially, no, I'm good. But if you dig deeper, you might realize, yeah, I actually am thirsty. And then ask yourself, am I hydrating? Where am I getting my water from? And then lastly, am I watering other people? And from what water am I using? So I'm going to close by praying over our, our Guatemala mission team and, and commissioning them. And then we'll have a time of reflection afterwards. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, You're a good God. You're good to us and You're kind because You give us what we need. You nourish us with living water. And Lord, so often I pray that You would forgive us, Lord, because we draw from other wells. And we think we're satisfied. We think we're, we're satiated. I pray that You would remind us of our thirst today and draw us close to Yourself. Pray for the team going to Guatemala. I pray that You would use them, that You would bless their efforts. pray that people would come to know You through them. And I pray that they would encourage the work of our partners there. We love You, Lord. It's in Your Son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon. Come and join us as we seek to follow Jesus every day. We meet every Sunday at 9.15 a.m. for our small group Bible studies called Connect Groups and 10.45 a.m. for worship. We hope to see you soon at Park City's Baptist Church.